John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And while you're holding that in place, turn also to Psalms 89, verse 14. John chapter 8, and Psalm 89, 14. John chapter 8. The Bible says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard the knot. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said of them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. wonder why she didn't leave either. She stayed. Looking forward to that. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. An amazing passage of Scripture. Psalm chapter 89, verse 14. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are already truly humbled at the songs and psalms that we've sung, yet we're truly blessed in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has obtained such a glorious salvation for your children. Lord, that we even have a desire to sing praises unto God and to love you is a miracle of itself considering where we were without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. Yet this morning, Lord God, we gather here because we have Christ as our Savior. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would help us to honor and glorify your name. May the Spirit of God, Lord, guide and direct our hearts this morning into your word. May the power of your sovereign word not only embrace our hearts and our minds, but conform us even more into the image of Christ. But most of all, in you being glorified, Father, we pray that we would be drawn closer to you, that we might be more like Christ. For nothing glorifies the Father more than the image of a son stamped upon the hearts of his children. Forgive us where we've sinned, where we failed. Help us, dear God, this morning to pay heed to your word. Help me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. 
if there was ever a passage of Scripture which most reflected and displayed the glorious truths found in this 14th verse of Psalm 89, then surely it is in these verses found in the Gospel of John chapter 8. And who else could so gloriously display its divine truths with more perfection and more magnificence than Jesus Christ himself, by whom grace and truth has come unto sinful man. We see Psalm 89 verse 14 come to life in John chapter 8. We see how in Christ the justice and judgment of God is established and secure and eternal, yet we see in Christ how His mercy and His truth and His grace establishes that justice and judgment in a way which sinful man can be now acceptable in the presence of God. Job said it great, the best. How can a man be just? With God, how can a sinner, a sinner who's lost in transgressions, who's at enmity with God, how could he ever be just with God? How could God maintain His justice and His judgment and His holiness and yet still save a sinner? In the face of Jesus Christ, The habitation or foundation of God's throne is justice and judgment, is what the psalmist said. It's eternal, it's secure, it's unchangeable, it's unapproachable and inaccessible to sinful man. Yet it is mercy and truth, the verse says, which goes before his face. And that's an amazing truth which I pray that we would all at least begin to comprehend a little bit how the Word of God uses the expression, the face, it goes before His face. The throne is justice and judgment, yet in His face is mercy and truth. And that face is clearly Christ Jesus Himself, who is the brightness of God's glory, Hebrews says, and the express image of His person, and whom Paul says, whose face the light of the glory or the knowledge of the glory of God doth shine. It's in Christ. Psalm eighty nine fourteen depicts Christ. And here in John chapter 8, we see Christ putting that into effect. We see it manifested before our very eyes in his dealings with these scribes and Pharisees and with this woman taken in adultery. Here in John chapter 8, we clearly see revealed in Christ how God's justice and judgment are made accessible and satisfied to the mercy and truth of Christ, without which God's justice and judgment brings only certain condemnation. I'm getting ahead of myself, but just to throw out some food for thought, the Pharisees and the scribes left under a guilty conscience. You can have a guilty conscience, and it still does not mean you're repentant. If that guilt does not leave you to trust in Christ, you're left with what they were left with, nothing but an empty guilt, a shameful guilt 
that drew them away from Christ. Yet here is the woman, here is a woman, getting ahead of myself, here is the woman caught in the act of adultery, and her accusers leave. The first thing I would do is I would beat feet in the other direction. Why did she stay? She was the guilty one, according to them. You see how God sovereignly drew this woman unto Christ. You don't believe in divine election? Read John chapter 8. She stayed. There lies within these words, chapter 8 of John, divine truths of indescribable riches. If only the Spirit of God would be pleased to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of His Word. And as much as I'd like to get the meat to the meat of this event this morning, uh, there are some things that precede this event which requires our attention first if we're ever going to be able to in, in obtain all of the riches of what Christ is doing in John chapter 8. So I will save the meat for next week. This morning will just be the appetizer, let's say, because we need to understand that. I want you to look in John, John chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. John chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. We have recorded in these first two verses a divine truth of the greatest importance, which at first appearance may appear to be insignificant. Most people in their haste to get to the meat of this chapter would speedily read over it and give it no thought or no attention. But we have to if we're going to understand the whole thing here in chapter 8 of John. It's the very key which actually opens up this entire chapter. Verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, you know anything about the history of Christ, you should know something about the Mount of Olives in regards to Christ. It was a special place for Christ. He retired there often for quietness and solitude, for prayer, sometimes all night. This was a place of His choosing that the Scriptures clearly define as being a place where Christ often retired to from the hassles and persecutions and stresses and hectics of the day. What is Christ doing in verse 1? Christ is going up to the Mount of Olives to do what I believe we all believe He did so well, and that was to pray. To pray. The day in chapter 7 had been long and not without much abuse and persecution if you read the 7th chapter. His adversaries were not a few. So he retires to a very familiar place, a place of solitude and quietness that he might converse with the Father and no doubt, I believe, it was all night. Christ knew nothing of a just a little talk with Jesus. I believe it was an all-night conversing with the Father. Does that bear witness to what our prayer life is or should be? We live in a hectic time, I agree. Believe me, I hold three jobs. <laughs> hectic. 
But if we ever start neglecting those quiet times in solitude with Christ alone in prayer, we're going to find ourselves growing spiritually weak at a devastating rate. Even Christ knew that he had to spend time with the Father. He knew that that time with the Father in prayer was essential to his ministry amongst men as he walked amongst men. He knew he needed strength from God, especially after chapter 7. He was abused and persecuted. They railed on him in chapter 7. The pride of man and the strife of the tongue can cut deep. And that's all he had all day long if you read chapter 7. Even for the Son of Man, as he walked amongst men, it is an unruly evil, James says, full of deadly poison. That's the tongue. And that's how they treated Christ in chapter 7. All day long they abused him and they ridiculed him. Therefore, Christ is an example to all persecuted believers. Retire to one place, that secret place of refuge, where he can gain strength in God. Listen to this verse in Psalm 31, which fits what Christ did in John chapter 8, verse 1, so well. Psalm 31, verse 20, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Listen to me closely. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in the pavilion from the strife of tongues. Christ had seen nothing but strife of tongues all day long and the pride of man. You know what the pride of man is a reference to? It's a reference to a league or a conspiracy. And I'll show you in a few minutes that they was. They was in league. They was in conspiracy against Christ. It's when the wicked form a conspiracy or a league against the righteous or here in our text against Christ. They were lashing out at Christ. So what's Christ do? Christ goes to the secret of the presence of God to hide Him from the pride of men and to keep Him safe from the strife of tongues. Look at chapter 7, verse 49. I want you to, want you to see this. This was the conspiracy. John chapter 7, verse 49. Listen to what they say here. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. They're cursed. Now watch what they do in chapter 8, verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 51 of 7, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? And no, they conspired against Christ. This whole thing in chapter 8 with the Pharisees and scribes was a conspiracy. And I'm going to get there in a minute, but Christ wasn't ignorant of it. He knew it was going to happen. But Christ has received the strife of the tongues all day long. Listen to me. If we know anything about living the life for Christ, we're going to experience ourselves as Christians, people who harass us, abuse us, talk about us. The strife of the tongue can cut deep. I've been in the ministry over 30 years, or actually over 35 years, and I've had my times of tongue lashing, false accusations, accusers. They cut deep. 
That's why James talks about the tongue and how deadly it is. It's poisonous. How hurtful it is. That's why we should be careful how we speak. Slow to speak, slow to anger. Because it can be a most poisonous weapon. It can hurt. Now I know Christ was the Son of God, but He was also the Son of Man. He had passions like us, yet without sin. He'd experienced that all day long. So what does he do? He goes into the secret presence of the Father to hide him from the pride of man. And he goes into the secret pavilion to hide himself from the strife of tongues. You see, the only, only cure, the only solution to that is prayer. Christ was not ignorant of this conspiracy or league against him. But gives himself to prayer. I believe that's why we have... Verse 1 here, I believe it's really the reason why it's there. He ends chapter 7, or the Word of God ends chapter 7 with 53. Every man went into his own house. They went into their own house. They went and did their own thing. Christ goes up into the Mount of Olives. Why? Not only because of the day that was behind him, but what he was fixing to face in chapter 8. Listen to me real closely here. When we, when we neglect that quiet time, with God in prayer, we're not able to stand against what's happened through us throughout the day, but we're certainly not able to meet those things that have not yet come. We don't know what's going to happen, but prayer gives us the right state of heart and mind for anything that might happen. We're not like Christ. We couldn't know for a surety what they were going to do, but prayer enables us to be prepared for what might come. And sometimes it knocks us off our feet. Sometimes the lot God chooses for us is overwhelming and discourages us. Sometimes that happens. But if we're in constant prayer like Christ was with the Father, it's not going to knock us so far on the ground or hurt us so much because we have been praying and we're trusting in God to guide us and direct our footsteps. So I believe verse 1 is a vital, important, significant part of John chapter 8. Anything Christ did, He didn't do it for Himself. He did it for us as an example. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, a pavilion. The name of the Lord. That's not just one name. If you know the Scripture, has a lot of names of the Lord. Think about them all. Jehovah, Jireh, and you go on and on. The names of the Lord... The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it. They run into it. And it's safe. You know what that word is safe means? It means aloft, lifted up. Secret presence of God. So I believe chapter one or chapter eight, verse one is vitally significant for us not only to understand what's fixing to happen here in chapter eight, but also vital for us to understand how we deal with the strife of tongue and how we deal with persecution. It was a long, hard day for Christ. We need to understand, and I know we do maybe mentally, that Christ was not only God but he was man, yet without sin. He hungered, he thirsted, he wept, 
And if you believe that Christ could go through a day like this in John chapter 7 without feeling the injuries and pains and abuse, you're not understanding his humanity enough. So verse 1 is for us. Go to God in prayer. Find refuge. Find that quiet place, that place of solitude. I liked how the old preacher once said, you need to learn how to close yourself, in your, put yourself in your closet and close the door to the world and everything in it and spend some time alone with God. and Meditate and pray. 90% of our prayer lives are wants and wishes. Have you ever spent just time in prayer thanking God, not wanting anything, not desiring nothing, but just falling before God and thanking Him and praising Him for everything He is and just going through the list of all His goodness and His mercy and His grace? getting ahead of myself, but too often our prayers are full of selfish ambition and desires. He said, Preacher, I'd like to learn how to pray in a manner that's more glorifying to God. How can I do that? Study this. Meditate on it. Search it. Keep it in your heart. For like John Owen says, there's no prayer more glorifying to God than the one that echoes His very word. You ever prayed and just quoted Scripture? God, you, I know that your word says all things work together for good to them that love God. That you're going to perfect that which concerneth me. That, Lord, you're going to move in my heart and my life. Lord, you asked me to cast all my cares upon you for you care for me. You told me that my heart should not be troubled. That is the sort of prayer that glorifies God. And it drives the word of God so deep within the depths of our hearts and our minds and our souls that we're transformed by it. Oh, that we might follow Christ's example against the pride of men and the strife of their tongues, which often strike deep, that we might evermore learn to pray in accordance to Scripture, that we might come to know more of the power of God's Word through prayer, through prayer. But I want you to see, second of all, and again, I'm not going to get to the meat till next week, but I want you to see, second of all, because this is important, and I believe the Holy Spirit put it in there for this reason, I want you to see the evidence of the power of God's promises accompanied by prayer. I want you to see the evidence. Look what happens in verse 2. Let's read verse 1. Jesus went into the Mount of the Olives, probably all night in prayer. Now watch what happened, and early in the morning he came again. That's significant. What do you mean he came again? Well, chapter 7 he went into the temple and taught. And that's where he got all the abuse and persecution and affliction. What did his prayer life affect in him? He rose early in the morning. He didn't delay. He probably, probably didn't even get any sleep at all. But his desire to fulfill his father's will burned so fervently in his heart, he got up early in the morning. Just like Abraham, when God said, give me your son, he got up early in the morning. Oh, we've got to get up early. If prayer has affected us, God give us grace to get up early and be busy about our Lord's service. Prayer doesn't leave us unaffected. 
but it actually inspires us and provokes us to do something in the service of Christ. Early in the morning, he came again unto the temple to the same place that he'd received such tongue lashing and persecution. He comes again. He gave him strength to go back. And he begins to teach. Beloved, listen to me. There are too many dormant and lifeless prayers amongst those who profess Christ. Dormant and lifeless prayers. Too many who enter into their closet to pray, yet who exit unchanged, unaltered, unrenewed, and undetermined to live more for Christ. What kind of prayer life is that? If all we do is boast our prayers, or we boast that we're praying, but it leaves us unrenewed and unaltered, unchanged and undetermined to live more for Christ. Prayer, when we truly pray and we truly converse with God, we get up wanting to do something more for God. To meet anew the challenges and difficulties and hardships which confront the believer with renewed determination, resolution and zeal. You know how Christians can go on years and years fighting the fight of faith and not be weary because they've learned the secret of prayer. If we in our own strength did confide, our striving would be losing. Prayer enables us to stand up against opposition that keeps coming and keeps coming. Stand up against the strife of the tongues of the pride of men. Prayer enables us to keep going for the cause of Christ. Early in the morning he came again under the temple and he sat down and taught them. That was the evidence of his truly praying. He did something. If you ask me, we have too many, you know, like the world has couch potatoes. We call them couch potatoes. They sit around, don't do nothing. If you ask me, Christianity today has too many couch theologians. And let me tell you something. There's good things about the Internet, but there's also bad things. And if you ask me, to be personally, I think there's more bad things about it than good things. The Internet has made Christians lazy. It's easy to sit before a monitor and discuss the things of Christ. Type in whatever you want. If you don't like them, you ignore them. They say something about you, just take them off your friend list. I'm telling you, Christians are having a hard time relating with the real world. They speak loud and boldly of the truths of God from the comforts of their own couch or behind the safety of their home computer. I'm not saying that's all bad. Don't misinterpret that. Well, you know, preacher, there's good things that there is, but or there are, but I believe there's too many bad things about it myself. I think it's opened up a floodgate of problems for the church. There's one that I won't discuss this morning because if I did that, I'd open a can of worms that I don't know whether I'd be able to contain anymore. But there's one that really bothers me about the Internet and Christianity, but I won't go there today, but it has done more harm than good. Even though we use sermon audio and people listen to our sermons, they are good, but beware of that, that you don't become a couch theologian. 
Christ prayed before he chose the twelve. He sought the Father's wisdom and guidance. Christ was praying privately on the hill, remember, overseeing the disciples on the stormy sea before coming to walk on the water. He was up in the hills praying for them. If you remember that text in Matthew chapter 14, he was up praying for them. Why was he praying for them? Not just for them, but he was praying that God be glorified. But he prayed before he began walking on the sea. Before he left the upper chamber, remember he prayed, John chapter 17. Man, what a prayer. You want to learn how to pray? Read that one. The Holy of Holies. Christ prayed in the garden. Remember? He said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go pray. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take three of my closest disciples. They're going to come with me. The others stay here. I'm going to bring the three closest disciples. Come with me so that I can pray so that you're there. You can encourage me. So he goes off, takes the three, begins praying, comes back, and they're asleep. Christ knows what he's fixing to face. They're ignorant of it, but he knows. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. He's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's going to be crucified publicly in shame. Beaten to where no man recognizes him. Could you not stay with me? Awake one hour? The father says no. In this moment, no human comfort is given. You've got to find your total comfort alone in me. You ever been there in your Christian life where it just seems like no human can comfort you? God said, this is the moment I want you to draw your comfort from me and me alone. I'm not going to allow you to be comforted by anybody else but me. Oh, that we might learn that. And you know, after he prayed, he's finished, he stood up and said, let us go. The hour is at hand. He was ready. He prayed on Calvary. In the depths, in the midst of his agony and pain, he prayed on Calvary. Father, I pray not that you lay this to their charge. If our prayers, beloved, have not produced a change, a renewal of determination, a zeal for Christ, a greater love and devotion for Christ and His glory and His cause, we haven't prayed. That's why it says that early in the morning He came again into the temple and all the people came unto Him and He sat down and taught them. Yet one more thing I want to show you out of this before I close it for the day. One more very important truth about this event. One which I believe is worthy of our attention as well. Namely, this whole conversation, this whole event, like every event, was orchestrated and sovereignly designed by God. This was not a coincidence. Listen to me closely in the eyes of God, because it has a lot to do with what Christ is doing in chapter 8, but it has a lot to do with us in our situations of life. God... God not only predicted it, but God orchestrated this conversation. Do you know that? We believe in the sovereignty of God, right? I hope we do. And the providence of God. Christ was not ignorant of what they were doing or what they're going to do. Why do you think he went to prayer in verse 1? But God himself orchestrated this event. Look over in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, let me show you something. Christ provoked it. He ordained it. Why is that important? I hope to show you that at the end of this in a few minutes. John chapter 7, verse 18. Christ speaking himself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. 
Watch this. Did not Moses give you the law? Who brought out the law on Moses? Christ. What's he doing? A man's heart devises the way, but the Lord directeth his steps. The Lord's leading up to John chapter 8, and this woman caught in adultery because John chapter 8 is all about the law. So he brings up Moses in the law. None of you in, uh, keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses, he brings him up again. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the Father, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit the whole on the Sabbath? Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You see, he's leading up to John chapter 8. Look at verses 45 in the same chapter, chapter 7. Verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the, or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who know, but this people who knoweth not the law, see that? Knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said to them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? You see how the Lord's providentially leading up to John chapter 8? And then John chapter 8, verse 5. This is what they said. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? You see how God providentially and sovereignly directed this circumstance to where it was. Why is that so important in closing today? Why is that so important? Not only that we pray, spend time with God. Prayer excites us to do things for God. But there's one thing we have to learn from this. God sovereignly and providentially ordains all things, all circumstances, everything. There's no chance. There's no coincidence in life. Everything's ordained of God. We have to believe that. When we meet trials and tribulations and abuses and persecutions, not only must we learn how to pray and find strength to stand up against them, not only do we have to be encouraged to keep going and doing the service of Christ, we have to know in our mind that this did not come by chance. It's not an accident. Even though it might sometimes appear to be very discomforting, whatever lot chooses, whatever lot God chooses, it's a safe choice. And beloved, we find comfort in that, that God has divinely ordained this to be so. You said even the bad things, even the apparent bad things, if not, he would not be God. They devised this seeking to accuse Christ, but it was God who was behind the scenes, just like with Job. When Satan is the one that did all that to Job, and Job is the one that credited God. Shall we not receive the good from God and the evil as well? And all these things Job did not. Let me close with Psalm 27. And I promise this will be a closing verse. Psalm 27. Listen to what the psalmist says here. Psalm 27, 1 to 6. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. Sound like Psalm 89. In the secret of his tabernacle, Psalm 89, shall he hide me, he shall set me upon a rock, and now shall mine head be lifted up. You'll be safe. You'll be aloft. My head shall be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing. I will sing praises unto the Lord. You see the confidence of that? This is why we need to understand that John chapter 8, though devised by the Pharisees for a trap, was suddenly ordained by God to bring about amazing, miraculous event to show you and I something about the justice, judgment, mercy, and truth of God in the face of Christ. And it's something that we need to be understanding of. And what I'm looking forward to in the next week or two, probably next week, maybe two, is that we might learn something about that. Because let me tell you this. Ever since the entrance of sin into the world by Adam, mankind has always had a distorted and corrupt understanding of justice, truth, and mercy. Always. Either he exercises judgment with no mercy or sacrifices justice in the name of mercy. We have to maintain the balance that Christ did. We can only learn that from Christ. May God give us the grace to learn from Christ. Amen. Wonderful passage of Scripture. But I needed to lay down that foundation so that we might be able to receive the fullness of what Christ is fixing to do, not only in this adulterous woman, but also in the scribes and Pharisees who walked away. Amen. May the Lord give us grace and mercy. Find that quiet place like Christ did. Find that quiet place. Don't ever forsake it. And if you forsake it too long, run back to it as quick as you can. Maintain that fellowship with God because it will help you, strengthen you from what you went through, but it will also prepare you and I for what's coming. Keep that fellowship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we pray that, God, you'd help us to apply these things to our own hearts. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do, Father. And, Lord, may we learn from Christ. We thank you and we love you, Lord, that you enable us to pray. And where we cannot pray, we thank you for the assistance of the Holy Spirit who help us to pray as we ought, for we know not how we ought to pray. God, give us grace, we pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all things. In Christ's name, we